Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I'm your host. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Mark Mulder, Professor of Congregational and Ministry Studies at Calvin College, and Dr. Gerardo Marti, Professor of Sociology at Davidson College. They are the co-authors of The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral, published in 2020 by Rutgers University Press. Professors, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Lane. Thank you. So before we dive into the book, I'd like to start by just asking each of you about yourself, your background, research interests, and how you came to this particular topic. Dr. Mulder, let's start with you. Sure. So I'm a uh... Originally from uh, rural Wisconsin, and uh, but now I study uh, urban sociology. I tell my students, really, I like to describe it as um, where race and religion intersect in the city. So a lot on neighborhood and place. My first book, Shades of White Flight, looked at how um, evangelical congregations in Chicago reacted to demographic change as the Great Migration uh, brought African Americans into their neighborhood. And so um, it's always been a fascination of mine to, to think about this intersection of race and religion. And um, Gerardo and I have, um, we've been friendly, I would say, for probably about 15 years. Um, we really uh, started working more closely together about seven or eight years ago when we started um, studying Latino Protestant congregations. We were funded with a grant from the Lilly Foundation in 2013-2014. And as we were spending a lot of time together, Gerardo brought up this idea of, hey, nobody's really done any sociological analysis of uh, Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral. And um, he was really looking, he really thought somebody should study it. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a lot going on. Um, but the more I thought about it, um, Schuler uh, comes from the same Dutch Calvinist milieu as I do. Uh, I grew up in rural Wisconsin. He grew up in rural Iowa. Um, 
he grew up uh, Reformed Church in America. I grew up uh, in the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, which broke off from Reformed Church. But those churches are usually shoulder to shoulder in these small towns. And uh, the, the town he grew up in, Iowa, was Elton. And the town I grew up in, Wisconsin, was Elto. And they both are from named after the same uh, small town in the Netherlands. And so there's a lot of interest for me in Schuler as I, as I began to think about the project um, more intently. And then we realized that just down the road from me uh, at the Joint Archives of Holland at Hope College and Western Seminary, where Schuler had been an undergrad and a divinity student, they had uh, 40 linear feet of material on Schuler and um, the Crystal Cathedral Ministries. And so it just seemed like such a, a good story uh, and an untold story that we really, we didn't quite know what it was, but we felt like it was, I think we started talking about this in 2015, um, the same year that Schuler passed away and um, passed away quite quite silently uh, with, with not a lot of people discussing it. And we really felt like he was a giant of late 20th century American Christianity that needed to be taken more seriously. And so we started um, thinking um, more and more about what this project could could look like. And I can let Gerardo speak to, um, you know, his close brushes with the cathedral and, and Schuler as well. Yes, please do, Dr. Marti. Well, I was born in Massachusetts. My parents are from Cuba, um, left uh, the country after Castro's takeover, and from Massachusetts soon moved to Southern California. So I grew up in a suburban white enclave where religion was hot. Southern California was not a place that was characterized by secularization. It was characterized by religious intensity. And that's something that I also participated in all of the different developments that were happening in the area. Pentecostalism, charismatic Christianity, the expansion of the American megachurch, and all of the techniques that were being used, particularly by church growth theorists who believed that they had figured out how to take churches and make them successful, uh, financially well-off and larger. And so as I grew as a sociologist, I began to see congregations as a way of being able to tap into the changing dynamics of race and religion. So fast forward past uh, many studies, um, my, my training, of course, as a sociologist, but then so many different intriguing occasions that I've had to be able to study uh, race and religion through congregations. And I grew up in the shadow of Robert H. Schuler's ministry, uh, even though it was one of the most successful televangelist ministries broadcast all over the world. Uh, I was watching um, the buildings going up, the expansion of the facilities, um, the tearing down of neighborhoods in order to make room for more church. And I participated in a number of different events uh, that were there, as well as knew a lot of people who were engaged in the ministry as well. So in many ways, I had a front seat to one of the most dynamic ministries uh, that lasted uh over 50 years, and had been a pace setter for many church leaders for how church should be done in the 20th century. Uh, And so uh, given that the church had been failing and that bankruptcy 
uh, was being announced um, and all of these squabbles that were taking place, you had now a dramatic moment of being able to see something that appeared to be so successful and so stable and so strong, and yet it was uh, crumbling uh, all of a sudden. And so in talking with Mark, I was so glad that we could team together in a project where we would be able to bring both of our sensibilities together, uh, both of us understanding sort of a white orientation to American Christianity, um, one that had sort of Midwestern-ish sensibilities and yet took advantage of celebrity and land and the financial uh, boost that had been going on uh, for so many people as their asset-based wealth was being uh, grown and accentuated. And so together we were able to take a close look at something. And I think we really discovered some fascinating dynamics in this particular place that is relevant to the development of Christianity in America and uh, tells us something about where religion is headed in the 21st century. Well, absolutely. Well, let's dive into the book then, because you do tell that story in such a compelling way. Um, So when I was a a kid uh, myself, growing up in a fairly conservative Christian home, we, we went to church every Sunday morning. But on those Sunday mornings when I didn't go to church, you know, my, my brother or myself was sick or something like that. We would stay home and whichever parent stayed home with us would make sure that we would always tune into the hour of power that came on at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on the NBC affiliate in my, my hometown. Now, for someone who maybe didn't grow up in that sort of much smaller media environment, it, it might be difficult today to imagine a Protestant worship service being beamed into the homes of millions of Americans on one of the big television stations. I mean, this wasn't TBN or a a niche cable channel. This was NBC. So Dr. Mulder, maybe you could start and just tell us a bit about Robert Scholler. Just tell us about his background, how he came to have uh, such a reach into the lives and homes of so many people around the world. Yeah, I think we describe it as uh, stranger than fiction because he... um is a dower. He comes from this, what um, is described. Um, there was actually an A&E biography episode on him, and they described Schuler as coming out of a um, dower Calvinist sect in Iowa. Um, now, anybody who knows anything about religion in the United States knows that actually the RCA is a, considered a mainline Protestant denomination. But the, the point is, he, he is not the person you would think that would come up with this, uh, you know, this radical, well, not radical, but this dominant template for how worship would be done um, in the late 20th century uh, United States. So he, he begins in Iowa. Um, he, his, you know, he grows up in the Depression. Um, you know, there's a story about the family farm being uh, blown away by a tornado but the hard work of his dad, they take down an entire another farmhouse uh, nail by nail and rebuild it. You know, he journeys about eight to 10 hours away to the shores of uh, to the e- eastern shores of uh, Lake Michigan to Holland, Michigan, and, and studies at Hope and then Western. And then he gets his first pastorate in um, suburban Chicago. And it looks for all observers that he's going to have this quiet um, you know, Reformed Church in America, mainline Protestant um, pastorate. But he starts building uh, 
at the church. He, he grows it both literally and, and figuratively. The, the, the numbers increase. And then he says, we got a problem, folks. Uh, we, we just don't have enough room. And so it's the first time in his career where he pitches, listen, we're too popular and, and, and it's causing us to, to, to burst at the seams. So we need to build more. And this becomes a, a pattern that he would repeat throughout his career. And he takes it, you know, he gets, he's so successful in uh, suburban Chicago that the denomination actually calls him out to Southern California to plant a church. And um, so he gets out there and he can't find any place to, to actually hold a service. Because as Gerardo said, I think we described Southern California as a religious hothouse in, in 1955 when Shula arrives. Uh, he can't, he can't use a, um, a mortuary, the schools, they're all rented by other churches. And so his ninth option out of 10 is a drive-in movie theater. And, um, but then actually it starts to be quite successful. And then he reinterprets it as an intentional choice of based on accessibility. And he's, and he's, he's very popular uh, at the first service though. They actually had a, you know, uh, he had to basically hire almost a choir to show up, and he asked them to all come in separate cars so that it would look like um, there's more people there than, than might be. And this becomes this, this move for him where he starts reinventing and, uh, and really wants to build on the idea of success. And so the drive-in theater, uh, it, it works. But he still seems to be constrained by this idea. If I want to be a legitimate pastor, I need to, I need to have a, a traditional sanctuary of some sort. And so he eventually does that. And then it just starts, once he does that, he, he moves on and, and builds the world's first, high, what he calls a hybrid sanctuary. Because he wants to have the accessibility to drive in, but he wants a traditional sanctuary as well. And so in Garden Grove, he, he builds the, the, the sanctuary with... Um, the movable glass doors that allow him to preach to people both in the sanctuary and in uh, the parking lot as well. And this is, is the success that eventually would lead to the Crystal Cathedral in 1980. It is a very interesting blend of, of pragmatism and traditionalism. Um, and you capture that really well. So now in your first chapter, you give a brief overview of the rise and fall of, of Schuler's ministry. And you really note three core components that he relied upon for the extraordinary growth of his church and its constituency, charisma, and capital. Uh, Dr. Marti, maybe you could just sort of briefly describe these categories, how they functioned, not only in Schuler's church, but in it, you, you sort of apply this to, to uh, megachurch congregations in general as well. And then we'll kind of get into the specifics uh, of these in Schuler's context. Mm. Well, Robert Schuler wrote many best-selling books, and probably his most famous one is called Tough Times Never Last, But Tough People Do. And we start the book with a quote from that book. Robert Schuler says, the more successful we became, the more problems I had. And there's a sense in which we are too easy to see that the growth of these churches is just a simple success story. The bigger it is, the happier everyone is overall. But instead, once we start to pay attention to congregations as places that depend on resources, and those resources have to be managed, and if you don't carefully manage uh, these resources all together and calibrate how they work together, then everything 
will easily teeter out of control. So the three things that every church requires are constituents, uh, charisma, and capital. Constituents are the people who are members and committed to the congregation. You got to have members in order to have a church. Charisma is the ability to be able to inspire and, and draw attention and really gain those followers. Leadership has to have some form of charisma, and that charisma has to be able to excite enough people to come and to stay there and even to attract other people because of their enthusiasm. And then capital, which I think is the one that is the most often neglected in our studies. And that is you actually require funding, money, money to be able to take care of things. It's not just the salaries, um, it's the programming, it's the buildings. And so being able to understand how uh, charisma becomes attached to both constituents and the ability to draw constituents and then the dependence of charisma on capital, the ability to create a steady flow of funding that will continue to allow the expansion of the ministry over time is what we see as the analytic framework that will uncover all of the different dynamics and then some of the many contradictions that occur in these ministries. Hmm, very interesting. So you note in the book that Schuler developed these notions of church growth uh, early in his career. And Dr. Mulder, you mentioned that uh, before in Chicago. So even before he moved out to Los Angeles, there was this, this growth mindset. And you have this really great quote in the book. Um, it's, it's Schuler giving his own assessment of how he knew his early ministry was successful. Um, he says, I'm quoting, if the congregation grew, I was succeeding. If it didn't grow, or God forbid, if it went down in numbers, then I was failing. Uh, Dr. Mulder, maybe you could just start by by kind of explaining this mindset a, a bit to us. You know, there's, there's always been an entrepreneurial mindset in American religion, uh, or at least the historiography has really pulled that out. But this seems to be something different. I mean, this this focus on church growth, was this something that Schuler really developed or was he pulling on somebody else here? That's a really interesting question. So he is um, working in parallel, I would say, to some other, uh, Donald McGravin and Peter Wagner, um, who are also in Southern California. And they're all part of this church growth um, movement. And uh, it becomes, you know, in a in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, there, it became almost a, a scientific me- methodology that we can we can perfect church growth. And of course, they're all they're Christians, and so they you know this is the gospel and you know evangelism, trying to get more people to convert. And so, how do you do that? You get them get them uh, to come to church. And so, um, you know, Schuler would eventually uh, found a whole institute on. Uh, successful church leadership. And and a lot of it was, how do you grow churches? And so they would have church growth seminars with, with Wagner and McGavran uh, at the, at the Institute on the grounds of uh, the Crystal Cathedral and, um, or where the Crystal Cathedral eventually would be. And they would bring in thousands of, of pastors and, and their elders and, and spouses and the idea was we can figure out how to do this. We've done it and we can show you. And we can use principle marketing principles actually from business. And so there's a synergy between um, marketing and capitalism and business and Christianity that 
Schuler really spent a lot of time thinking about, writing about. And then I think one of the key things for him was the Institute, the Leadership Institute, where uh, we, we actually interviewed um, his personal assistant. His, um, Michael Nason was his personal assistant for 40 years. And he told us that of all the things that Schuler did, the, the Hour of Power, the Crystal Cathedral, um, he's probably most proud of the Leadership Institute and the influence it had because pastors would make uh, pilgrimages uh, to study uh, Schuler's principles. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, very interesting. I've, I've known a couple of pastors myself who have uh, noted that they participated in that at, at some point. Um, that is an interesting fact. So you note that Schuler prized personal charisma as really granting him the authority for his ministry, more so than an affiliation to, to any denomination. In fact, I, I didn't even realize before reading your book that Schuler was ordained in the Reformed Church of America, which is you know a very mainline church, as you noted. But he purposefully left out the name Reformed from his church, and instead he reply or he relied upon that personal capital that he built with his congregation and his his audience. Um, Dr. Marti, back to you. Maybe you could explain a bit how this reliance upon personal charisma was not only crucial for Schuler's success, but really became a template for megachurch phenomena in the, the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Yeah, the further you go in reading the book, the more things are uncovered and the more fascinating it becomes. One of the things that Schuler prized himself as being was a theologian, but most people who observe him do not consider him to be much of a theologian at all, feeling like everything's very thin and um, just trying to sort of appeal to the masses and willing to say almost anything in a soundbite in order to attract people. But Schuler never was concerned about the theological depth of his own ministry. So he quickly moved on from that and simply said, as a pastor, what is it going to take to have a dynamic church? And once he started asking that question, which he did right after he graduated in his first ministry, then what we found is that he's paying attention to preachers who appear to really capture the attention of, uh, of Americans. And the, among the most influential people, and perhaps the most influential person that he gained from is Norman Vincent Peale. And Norman Vincent Peale created a way of approaching uh, the, the, the idea of what people are struggling with, you know, how do they make it in life? How is it that we deal with the uncertainty of all these changes that are happening in front of us? And the fact that you still have um, really a message geared towards men, 
men who are moving in business, dealing with economic uncertainty, trying to climb up the corporate ladder, trying to take care of their families. What is that? And that's where uh, Norman Vincent Peale's sense of positive thinking came from. And so instead of now uh, uh, talking about the need or the depravity of man and the, the need for salvation, it became an aspirational message about the kind of person we can become and the fact that God loves us and that he wants the best for us. And we can project ourselves into a successful mindset, which then Schuler called possibility thinking. So Schuler in talking about possibility thinking, he crafted a, a way of doing charisma to appeal to people without necessarily having a Christian background and being able to then play off or riff off gospel themes and the sort of everyday tensions that people may feel into an orientation that would guide them towards success in this great country, a country in which uh, capitalism is a good system, capitalism awards the merit and hard work of people. And so if we can just get people to understand that God is on their side and that they can um, sort of think better about what's going on within them and, and strive for things in partnership with God, then good things are going to happen. And as people are encouraged and they are succeeding and as people moving into this suburban uh, white uh, neighborhood in Orange County, California, they are experiencing exactly that kind of economic success. They have now a theological framework that helps them to explain that. And the overflow of that goodness is fed back into the funding of the church itself. So the funding of the church being able to create a broader platform, a more attractive platform for Robert Schuller, one that's telegenic, as well as something that actually is impressive in terms of its architecture and, and the way it looks when you're around, also serves to build uh, Schuller's charisma. And so the charisma ends up being this interesting cycling of attracting constituents who can provide the capital in order to expand the platform that would help yet again bolster the charisma that then reach out, reaches out further to more constituents who can then feed into the funding uh, of, of the entire enterprise. Hmm. So part of Schuler's success, it seems like certainly owes to being the right person in the right time at the right place. And as you note, this is specifically Southern California in the mid 20th century. Uh, you, now your book offers a really interesting look into the culture of Southern California. I think it's a, it's a really valuable um, addition to some of the, to, to some other historical work that's recently been done um, in that area. Um, and, and you note that, you know, it, something like a drive-in church could really only work there. I mean, it would have almost been apostasy anywhere else. In fact, I think you know it was called apostasy in a few places. So maybe talk a bit about the context and why Schuler was such a good fit for that time and that place. I'll, I'll throw that to Dr. Mulder first. Yeah, so he was basically, Schuler's arriving um, just as other Iowans and other Midwesterners and even from the Southeast a bit were also arriving in Southern California. So when he set up shop in the drive-in theater, 
it wasn't like he was this Midwestern pastor trying to convert unchurched Californians. Instead, it was a, 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 a how do I get my fellow, fellow Midwesterners who have probably a lot of religious practice in their background. A lot of them probably went to church, but they're probably feeling also a little bit dislocated. And what? how can I lower the bar as easily as possible? So yeah, showing up in your car um, is a pretty easy sell. And so um, he, he is arriving at the same time that a number of white middle-class uh, families are also tilting uh you know, the weight of uh, the country toward California. And these middle-class families are economically uh, mobile. They're, they're coming, they're making a lot of money in the defense industry, uh, good paying jobs. And um, in a lot of ways, they want to be told that this kind of economic aspiration, it's okay, that it comports well with my Christian faith. And so there's a number of things that Schuler offers initially at the drive-in, and then he really develops it, you know, into the hybrid church, and then into the crystal cathedral, where it really uh, maps on to what these people, these new migrants to California, actually what they want to hear. Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, so you talk uh, quite a lot about the material realities of, of building a large ministry, um, meaning the literal bricks and mortar, or glass, I guess, in this case. Uh, that, that constitutes creating a, a megachurch ministry. And this is something I've noticed in my own research into Christian higher education. Um, we scholars often focus on sort of the religious or educational ideologies of the people who build these institutions. But in truth, when you really dig into the archives, you realize that these college presidents or pastors or, or leaders were spending large amounts of their time just trying to raise money and build things. And this seems to hold true for, for Schuler's ministry as, as well. Dr. Marti, maybe you could talk about the physical importance of Garden Grove Community Church and its, its architecture and also its need for expansion. Well, if I had more pages in the book, I would have spent more time talking about uh, the way in which financialization came into this picture. Financialization meaning the fundamental shifting of policy and arrangements of how money, stocks, uh, debit and credit was being uh, rearranged in the 70s and 80s. Because what happened here is that in response to the stagflation of the 70s, there were radical changes being made in the financial markets, all blessed by conservative conservative legislatures. And Ronald Reagan really took this forward. Why is this important? It becomes important because the cost of money went down and the ability to gain uh, credit, large loans for very little um, upfront costs was expanding rapidly during this time. So once Robert Schuller took a look at his building, the hybrid building at the time, and began to project the changing demographics of the region as well as his own ambition for what could be accomplished with more space. Then he began immediately to combine fundraising with the ability to borrow more money. The borrowing of money becomes important because you don't have enough people in the church already committed to fund the initiatives that Robert Schuller is putting out. 
the, the size of his ambition outpaced the number of people in his church. And so the only way you can do that is by appealing to donors who are not local to the church at all. Uh, people from back home, back in Michigan, <clears throat> uh, people in Amway were really central to this story as we tell it. But it is also dependent on the ability of banks to go ahead and give a lot of money to these churches on the assumption that they are successful and they can pay this off in the future. This becomes instrumental to church growth philosophy. We can expand the building in anticipation of future attenders, future givers, so that the church becomes an income-producing vehicle. So Schuler himself thought of the churches as income-producing, that they were that you could safely invest in this ministry because once you build these seats, they will in and of themselves produce income for the future. So the architecture of uh, of the Garden Grove Community Church and then what become became the Crystal Cathedral was a coalescence of a number of things. Number one, Robert Schuller tried to move into a historic framework, like a historic mindset, and he wanted to build a cathedral that had the magnificence and the historical importance of the cathedrals of Europe. So that's what he wanted to do. But number two, he wanted to build a building that was not outrageously religious, that it had a connection to the corporate world, the successes of the corporate world that reflected in so many of his donors and the local community. So he innovated with a leading architect, a glass structure that had never been built before and is still considered one of the great architectural achievements of the last century because it is supposed to speak to the kind of religion, the kind of Christianity he felt was necessary for the future. But none of it could have happened if he wasn't able to access the funding through loans, which played into what he called his philosophy of capital. He had a theology of capital, and that theology of capital, combined with his possibility thinking, gave him incredible confidence to go ahead and maximize the amount of money that he could borrow using the vision of these buildings as an occasion for being able to fundraise further because he wanted people to uh, tie into this idea that we're not just building a church, we're actually speaking into a Christianity for all history, for the future of the world. And so that's where the amazing aspect of what he was able to create is something that was able to draw in this coalescence of funders, immediate uh, people, the people who are watching him on television, and then most importantly, the banks who were able to give him the money uh, in, in doing that. Well, I think that that story of, of finance and capital is one that is so often undertold in many of our historiographies, and it's uh, it's a really a really important factor that that you bring out in this book. So let's talk about the political context just a little bit. So, uh, in my opinion, the historiography of evangelicalism and conservatism often points to sort of the late seventies, early eighties and the rise of the moral majority and Ronald Reagan's presidency is this crucial moment for understanding the fusion of, of evangelicalism with Republican politics. But I found your uh, chapter that's titled no hippies in the sanctuary, which is a great 
uh, title, by the way, uh, interesting I, because it really shows that while the moral majority era might have been crucial for the political activation of many evangelicals, the groundwork for this activation was really being laid far earlier. And Schuler's church is probably one of the most prominent examples of this, I would guess. So you write in the book, I'm quoting here, as Orange County became a focal point of the military industrial complex, Schuler devised a theology that embraced patriotism, capitalism, and anti-communism. He once described the United States as a superpower with super people who have the super potential for super productivity, end quote. Um, so I'll, I'll open up uh, this to either of you, but maybe you could talk about how this underlying political message uh, functioned within a religious culture that actually thought of itself as apolitical, but really wasn't. Yeah, I'll start and then I'll, I'll hand it off to Gerardo. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the fascinating things uh, about Schuler, especially in 2020, when you um, think about religion and politics and partisanship. He really did uh, try to present himself as a, above the fray, as apolitical. Um, we have a little vignette in the, in the book about um, a local reporter finding out um, that he's actually you know, registered as a Republican and he gets really angry. How would you, you know, that's not true. How would you find that out? And then he, he tried to, um, you know, mitigate the damage by saying, well, I did vote. For, I have voted for Democrats. And um, so what he was trying to do was uh, promote a synergy um, with religion, capitalism, and political conservatism and, and tried to, to create a, a place where People would easily on-ramp into, uh, into his church and his way of thinking um, by, by blessing this. Uh, but I've got, again, he really did, did not want to be seen as a political conservative. And you use the word evangelical, um, you know, trying to nail down his actual um, religious tradition would be really difficult. Because I think a lot of people who watch Hour of Power would be confused, too, because he sounds a lot like an evangelical but with the vestments and the hymns and, and the, the liturgy, he, he actually looks more like a mainline Protestant. And that was part of his both his religious and uh, political identity in that they're really hard to actually um, get a good handle of. And then I think it was really intentional on Schuler's part. He wanted to be all things to all people. Um, he, you know, today we think about narrowing of marketplaces and really trying to have boutique churches that um, will appeal to uh, a narrow swath of people, but really have a lot of loyalty. Um, Shul was really kind of one of the department store churches. He really wanted to bring in a, a wide tent uh, of folks to participate. And, and so that's where he tried, why he tried to meld this, uh, a sense of apoliticalism, but it, underneath it, it really was conservative. And I'll let, go ahead and Gerardo elaborate. Yeah, well, one of the things that I loved when we uncovered this was how Schuler participated in the aggressive anti-communism of his day, and that his ministry went ahead and oriented itself around that anti-communist message as a way of affirming the patriotism uh, of him and his church, and to really play to the political sensibilities of his uh, dominantly conservative audience. And so he went to seminars uh, and he wasn't the only person to do it at this time, but for a period of time, one of the ways to most aggressively position your Christianity in a historical mindset is to paint it as this 
sort of grander war uh, of what would happen in the history of the world. And so the anti-communism, though, quickly played into long-term efforts to create a capitalist-friendly Christianity. And in this book, as well as um, a book that I wrote that came out this year called American Blind Spot, Race, Class, Religion, and the Trump Presidency, we need to recognize the development of a white Christian libertarianism, a Christianity that orients around libertarian imperatives of low taxes, of small government, and of uh, a presumption of religious uh, liberty that's geared specifically towards conservative Christians, and that the economic imperatives that we were seeing uh, the Republican Party take on were being seen as sacred and God-ordained. And so increasingly, the Bible was used to be able to show that the anti-communist, free enterprise, business-friendly Christianity that was being um, talked about was something that Jesus himself talked about, you know, that Jesus himself understood business, that the disciples were all businessmen, uh, small businesses as fishermen. We know through the parables, things like the parable of the talents, that these sort of principles of investment were there. And so there was this really intriguing development that Schuler played right into that patriotism uh, economic imperatives and Christianity all wrapped up in a Christian libertarianism is a, a proper perspective for a person to take today. And that's the kind of political message that Schuler was consistent in making while sidestepping that he was a member of a political party or that he advocated for uh, a particular party. So he made a great play at these kinds of things in the public guests that he would bring, um, in, the, in the way in which he would try to massage these through. But at the moment at which this California state said that Schuler's uh, church was not honoring the, um, uh, the taxation laws, then the fight came out. And so Schuler was now using the cathedral for concerts and special events and had even uh, installed a tele, uh, what was it called? The, Ticketron. The Ticketron, yeah. A Ticketron on the premises. And so the state of California started to say, well, wait a second, how is this a church and not a business? and began to assess taxes and a penalty for not paying taxes. And boy, the non-political Schuler came out fighting. And he began to use explicit libertarian talk about the need for um, uh, to avoid oppressive taxation and that churches shouldn't be involved and that the ministry of churches provides services that um, would cost a government that tried to do it, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And so uh, over and over again, what we find is evidence of a conservative Schuler that plays as an apolitical Schuler in, in order to try to play all sides. Uh, but in no way do you ever see Schuler confronting racism, seeing the economic inequality as problematic, 
um, uh, or ever questioning that the United States isn't anything but uh, a progressive and wonderful story of greatness uh, for all of the ideals that we would all have of freedom and goodness. Hmm. Well, we are getting to the end of our time, but we cannot talk about Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral without also talking about its downfall. Um, after years of financial decline, the church eventually declared bankruptcy in, in 2010. And you note in the book, and I'm quoting here again, Schuler's moments of failure to live up to his possibility credo reveal more than a critical lapse in the biography of a public leader. Sociologically, these episodes accentuate the dynamics of charismatic authority and its interrelationship with economic capital for sustaining the structures that uphold that authority. Uh, Dr. Mulder, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, maybe first give us some details about the downfall of Schuler's ministry, and then maybe whoever wants to jump in, explain what that dynamic exactly is between the charismatic authority and its interrelationship with the economic capital for sustaining structures of authority and why that was so important for the decline of GGCC. So on the surface, if you were, were just reading the news stories, um, in the, as, this was, as the decline was accelerating and becoming more public, you would think that this is just a bungled succession, that Schuler in the mid-2000s had, had laid the groundwork to hand off the entire ministry to his son, uh, also named Robert Schuler. And um, that when we talked to folks in, in California, in Garden Grove, they said, yeah, he just didn't have the, you know, the younger Schuler just didn't have the charisma. And, uh, you know, the church board tried to remove him. They said he could, he could remain the pastor of the congregation, but he couldn't be on hour of power. And that's, a, that's another crucial thing that uh, we won't have time to talk about, but there is, it's a, it's a really sophisticated corporation that uh, eventually um, becomes more powerful than the congregation itself, uh, Robert Schuller Ministries. Anyway, so the younger Schuller could, could maintain the ministry of the local congregation, but he couldn't be on hour of power. And he realized, well, that's, you know, that's really not the job. And so um, we see this succession. A couple of um, Schuler daughters try to take up the mantle, um, but uh, attendance is, is dwindling. And then in the midst of this, in 2008, you have um, the housing foreclosure crisis. And that also has negative consequences for the fortunes of the Crystal Cathedral. And uh, as I said, on a, on a surface level, um, it seems like that does explain it. What we actually did in the book is we actually demonstrate how the three C's of charisma, capital, and constituency all have to be in balance for uh, a structure, a megachurch structure like the Crystal Cathedral to remain in place. And we actually uh, doing some, you know, looking at a, a, the, some accounting books and things like that, you actually see that when... Um, Schuler builds the uh, the last building on the on the campus, which is a, a basically a museum, a, a welcoming center. It was called. Um, it's sheathed in um, aluminum. It actually is so futuristic looking that it, one of the recent Star Trek movies used it as the the set for uh, the Starfleet headquarters. Well, he took out a significant loan on that as well. That became. Um, quite a, a debt burden. 
They also had had quite a bit of success with um, local theater productions, The Glory of Christmas, The Glory of Easter, and they made quite a bit of money. And so they thought they'd try The Glory of Creation, and it just did not hit the same way. It also became indebted. And so you have you have the bungle transition going on. You have the overextension. You have the foreclosure crisis. And these things all start to cause the balance of the ministries to start to wobble. And then I'll turn it over to Gerardo to, uh, to talk about the, how the charisma and economic fortunes intersect. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, I, one of the histories to recover here is to recognize that in the building of a capitalist-friendly Christianity, this white Christian libertarianism, you had business uh, people, wealthy business people from all over the country who were feeding funds to the ministries that they approved of. And so I think that we have to appreciate that there were lots and lots of big dollar donations being given to Schuler's ministry, uh, regardless of whether they were actually attending or not, uh, because they were a part of a broader movement that had been going on since the 1930s. But all evidence seems to point that by the 1990s, that movement was starting to diminish. Uh, and the efforts of money being uh, given from these wealthy places was just not going around as much. They'd been largely tapped out or had moved on in succession in their businesses or with their families. And so Schuler had so reliably trusted in this notion of using his charisma to draw in people to be able to then get these large, big dollar donors, as well as get the big funding, that as the need for capital accelerated later, he thought he could just kind of use that again, and then use it again, and use it again. Well, it seems like the last straw was this last welcome center building. The funding was simply not there. The donors had largely disappeared by that point, and the demographics of the region were moving away from the base of people that uh, he had built his charisma on, which are Midwesterners and Southerners who had moved out already churched, already Christian to Southern California. And Robert Schuler said, we are experiencing a change in the demography where now people are coming who have no background in Christianity at all. And that's where you get the tell of who was Schuler's audience. It wasn't really the unchurched, meaning people who didn't know about church. It was the unchurched, meaning people who did not have a current church membership. And so the uh, people that he appealed to were people already understood the dynamics of church, believed that these buildings and the ministries that happened through the buildings were important, already accepted the legitimacy of the need for a strong pulpit preacher, and that these are the people that would be able to continue to hold him up as he moved forward. But charisma was failing because you no longer had those donors, you no longer had that population, and you simply could not sustain the borrowing uh, of, of that uh, much at that time. And so Weber famously wrote about charisma, but many people have ignored Max Weber's footnotes where he deliberately talks about that material giving was a component, a visible component of how you support a charismatic leader. And so it isn't just saying, oh, ah, or, you know, like having an emotional reaction. Charismatic leadership is evident 
through the material resources that are provided in support of that charisma. Because people give to that charisma, not just for the personal needs of that person, like to eat or be housed, it's to expand the influence of that charisma. And Schuler came up short. There were just not enough people who were willing to give towards expanding his charisma further. And, uh, and ultimately, although he had a succession plan in place that took him till he was 100 years old, um, uh, his, his own energy, the attempt to give over to his family, and the uh, mounting financial difficulties all started to work in the wrong direction. And uh, his own charisma diminished as a result. Hmm. Well, it is an interesting story that uh, there's so many facets to it that we, we don't even have time to get into today. I, I, people will have to pick up the book uh, because there really are so many, so many interesting facets to this. Uh, but before we finish up today, we'd love to know what you're working on now uh, or what projects are in the pipeline. Um, Dr. Marti, maybe let's, let's start with you. Well, actually, Mark and I, just uh, with another colleague, Kevin Doherty, received a $1 million grant from Lilly Endowment to explore uh, the addressing of racial justice in white-dominant churches. We're partnering with the Alliance of Baptists and engaging in a five-year process to be able to look at how we can address those things uh, very directly. And so that is uh, one of the most immediate projects and the one that we're just, we just, just got it announced just a few weeks ago. And so we're putting our little ducks in a row so that we can, uh, get started in earnest in January, uh, for the next five years. Fantastic. Wow. Congratulations on that. That, uh, that will absolutely be some crucial and interesting research. No doubt. Uh, Dr. Mulder, anything else on the, the, obviously this is a big, uh, big project you'll be uh, going on. Any other research going on for you as well? Well, we should note that this is not, that's not the only project that Gerardo and I have. Uh, we are also, we have a contract with Erdman's uh, to actually do a, uh, a biography of Schuler. So um, there'll be a follow-up. So anybody who picks up the, the Glass Church will realize it's not a, a linear biography. It's a, it's a series of sociological arguments that um, you know, is grounded in narrative, but is is not a typical biography. And so we we left quite a bit on the cutting room floor. And there's a uh, a biographical story that we think uh, needs to be told about Schuler as well. So we're, we're working on that in earnest. And um, we also have a project looking at um, uh, rural consciousness in in central Wisconsin. Um, in the last four or five years, the state's been, uh, as we all know. Um, the center of a lot of attention when it comes to uh, political identity. And, um, and being from that area, um, I have some access uh, to some places and some people. And so we continue to try to get a better sense of um, the, the intersection of uh, rural consciousness and religious identity. Excellent. Well, Dr. Mark Mulder and Dr. Gerardo Marti, they are the authors of The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral, published just this spring, 2020, by Rutgers University Press. This is a fantastic book. I think it would benefit students and scholars from a wide range of disciplines, from sociology to American religious history to those undertaking ministry and theological studies and many more. Uh, it is a fascinating story. I appreciate you uh, both telling it and offering your insights. Thank you both. Thank you, Lane. Thank you.
And thank you for listening to the New Books Network. Make sure you subscribe to one of our many New Books channels, and we will catch you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.